0: Following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, marching towards the cross, and we're we're there. Jesus is uh, is, is being crucified, and as I prepared for this message, um, I was reminded of one of the great joys and agonies of preaching, and the joy of preaching is that I get to study the Bible and get to stand up and tell others the amazing things that uh, the scriptures communicate about God and his plan. Uh, the agony part of it, though, is that uh, in order to communicate this message, you have to use words. And when you're talking about God's love, his power, his majesty, his glory, there's just not enough words or adequate words to describe him. And I really felt that way as I was uh, preparing for this, that just not the right words. How do you describe what God has done for us in words? And I can't even tell you how long I wrestled just coming up with a title, right, I, uh, that would capture it, right? So I thought I could use the title, God's Extremely Extravagant Lavish Love. kind of has a ring to it, but it's kind of long, right? Uh, Or how about this, God's Total and Complete, Utter Unselfishness in Loving Us. Also kind of long, right? Or or how about this one, The Indescribable, Over-the-Top, Magnanimous, Selfless Love of God. Well, also kind of cumbersome. So I, I, I picked love beyond words, because I couldn't come up with the right words, right? And that's really how God's love is. That's one of the challenges. We cannot put into words really what God did at the cross. But the good news is that, uh, especially in Luke's account, uh, he gives us some incredible pictures that uh, will help us at least envision what God's love is that words cannot capture, Um. Luke gives a bunch of uh, of short clips about the crucifixion. One sentence sound bites, sometimes two sentences. And the the action moves quite rapidly and quickly. And Luke actually leaves out a lot of detail. Uh, Luke skips over most of the details about the physical horror of the cross. Luke doesn't even mention that Jesus is nailed to the cross. Uh, He skips a lot of the beatings and scourgings. But, uh, but he packs a ton into this account, uh, so much so that I uh, could preach two months of sermons and said, I'm going to do it all today. No, I'm not. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to break it into two sections and I'm going to hit the high spots. Uh, but the point is that every little soundbite, every little glimpse, every little picture that, uh, that Luke gives us is intended to be a picture that describes so much more than words can express. Um. As we see his, God's love for us, uh, as Luke seeks to portray the meaning of the cross in the heart of Jesus as he gave himself up for us. So my goal this morning uh, is that we would really grasp more clearly the character of God who would give his son for us and the heart of Jesus who would lay down his life for us. Uh, who is this God that you trust and follow? Uh, do you really know him? Do you really understand what he is like? Well, hopefully as we contemplate and meditate the cross, it will give us a deeper picture of this God that we worship. And uh, clearly, as I tried to express in my really bad titles, uh, one of the things that we see on the cross is that Jesus was utterly selfless in his laying down his life for us. And uh, there's three good pictures. Or there's really four good pictures at least, and I'm going to talk about this more, but I'm not going to talk about them all. But there's four pictures that, that give us a glimpse of Jesus' unselfishness as he goes to the cross. first one in verse 26, it says, As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Uh, you're probably familiar with uh, the way the execution worked in Jesus' day. Um, the the criminal, the convicted one, had to carry their cross up to the place of execution. Now, uh, a lot of times, you know, you see in the movie Jesus is carrying the whole cross. It probably didn't actually happen that way. The main stake or upright pole was probably permanently mounted in the ground, uh, and and uh, his, historians tell us that it's just the cross beam that they would have carried, um, and so so that's what uh, what Jesus would have would have been carrying. Uh, it was, uh, and it was an ordeal as they would parade the prisoner through the streets of the city up to the place of execution carrying this beam. Uh, and it, it, was, it was intended to be humiliating, right? It was, it was intended to show that this person was guilty of serious crimes and this is what happens if you mess up. This is what happens if you break the law. And so they would have been beaten at this point, and the beating before crucifixion was quite severe. Uh, so they would have been uh, not a pretty sight to look at, and they're carrying this beam. And through the streets, all the people would line, and they would see. And, you know, it's it's a great opportunity for parenting, as parents would say. See, now, if you don't eat your vegetables, this is what can happen, right? <laughs> you got to pay attention. you got to obey mom and dad, right? And the message was clear. And it was humiliating, and it was intended to be, public, um, but Jesus does not carry his his cross, and uh, we don't know why. Luke does not say, the other Gospels don't say. It's assumed that he was too weak from the scourging and beating. Uh, we don't know, but the point is somebody else carries it, and there's a guy coming in from out in the country. He's coming into the city, and he just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they, they grab this guy, and they say, hey, look, you carry the cross for Jesus. You carry it. And uh, the the Roman soldiers, because it was such a humiliating thing, the Roman soldiers would not do this. They would not help Jesus by carrying the cross beam. It was beneath them. But they had the legal right to conscript people to service, and so they grabbed the Simon of Cyrene and they make him carry the cross. Uh, And he follows behind. And it would have been, for him, a kind of humiliating thing. Right, not not only because he probably had his own business to do, had things he didn't he didn't come to Jerusalem to help execute a prisoner, right? it wasn't convenient for him, but also it's it's this symbol now he's carrying the symbol of shame and humiliation. He in a sense has to identify with Jesus' suffering. He is put in, in you know, in the in the scene of Jesus' suffering and has to carry Jesus' cross. And it really is an amazing picture of what Jesus' death was all about, right? Jesus was not carrying or bearing his own cross either. He was not guilty of any crime that deserved punishment. He wasn't guilty of any crime, period. He was the perfect spotless lamb of God. And Jesus was um, sent to carry and suffer the shame that belonged to somebody else to suffer somebody else's penalty. And of course we know that it was our cross that he bore. It was our shame and our penalty that he died for. Um, but unlike Simon, who didn't have a choice in the matter and couldn't argue with the Roman soldiers, uh, Jesus did it willingly. Right? Jesus willingly took up our cross and our suffering and our shame. And he did not think of himself. He did not think of himself. He thought about us as he carried our cross and went to his death. Secondly, it says in verse 27, there followed this great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Uh, so it's, it's amazing. There's this huge crowd following Jesus. So as they wind through the streets of Jerusalem, this huge crowd gathering, uh, people following Uh, Certainly, the the Jewish leaders, Jesus' enemies, were in this crowd, eager to see him killed. Uh, But there's a lot of curious followers, bystanders. Uh, It was Passover season, so the city was packed with hundreds of thousands of visitors. And, And there's this massive crowd following Jesus. And it says that among them were women mourning. And it was part of their culture in the day that they had, in fact, a vocation of professional mourners. And we don't know if these women were were professional mourners, or if if they really knew Jesus, uh, Jesus calls them daughters of Jerusalem. So it's not likely that they were the women who came with Jesus from Galilee. They were probably a different group. Uh, We don't know if they were genuinely lamenting Jesus or if they were just doing their job, uh, lamenting some poor prisoner who's about to meet his end. But they're following Jesus, lamenting uh weeping wailing the 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 Greek word is actually beating their breasts right and it's this idea of this loud wailing loud sobbing and crying and it says that Jesus turns to them and he says women daughters of Jerusalem don't weep for me he says you need to be weeping for yourselves and he describes why and he says that Uh, that there is great judgment about to fall on Jerusalem. It's very interesting in Jesus' triumphal entry when he comes into Jerusalem to begin the Passion Week, Jesus himself weeps for Jerusalem. And he proclaims and prophesies that the city will be destroyed because they have rejected him. Well, now the rejection has, has come to its full climax as they are about to kill him. And Jesus knows that in in sending him to the cross, they have sealed their judgment. And that what is going to come as a result of this is God is going to destroy Jerusalem. And in fact, we know in 70 AD, these same Roman soldiers destroyed the city. And there was great suffering that fell on the people. And Jesus uh, describes the grief in, in horrific terms. He says, look, it will be better. You'll be more blessed if you never had children. And, of course, in Jewish culture, the blessing of children was a great gift and something people prayed and hoped for. But Jesus says, no, you will be far more blessed if you don't have children who have to endure and go through the horrors of what's going to come as the city is destroyed and its inhabitants are killed. Uh, Josephus tells us that the brutal murder of Jews by the Romans was horrific. And they actually crucified uh, hundreds of them. Uh, Those who they just didn't kill with the sword. It was awful. And Jesus said, it's going to be so bad that you will cry out that the mountains would fall on you and crush you so that the suffering would be ended quickly. Jesus says, you should be weeping for yourself. And What's amazing is he is uh, deeply concerned about the judgment that will fall on them. Even as he himself is going to the cross, suffering... um, uh, for them. Uh, now, is Jesus saying here that their suffering would be worse than his? Is he saying you should weep for yourself because what you're going to suffer is going to be so much worse than what I'm suffering? Well, that would be physically impossible, because Jesus was suffering the the most severe kind of death you could possibly imagine. Right? Uh, Jesus is not saying that his suffering is somehow less; that his pain was. Uh, was not as great as what they would. In fact, it could be well argued that, that what the Jews would experience in the destruction of Jerusalem was only in part of what Jesus experienced as the whole. Right? Jesus experienced the fullness of God's wrath, the fullness of suffering. He was dying the worst imaginable death. Um, and as we looked at, at Isaiah 53, the last couple of weeks, we've seen that, It wasn't just the physical suffering of the cross, but Jesus was bearing the wrath of God for sin. He was enduring the punishment of the sins of humanity. So, I don't don't know how you can imagine suffering that would be worse. Jesus is not saying, well, my suffering is light compared to what you will suffer. So, So how can he tell them, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves? Well, the difference between what they would suffer, what Jerusalem would suffer, and what Jesus would suffer is this. Jesus' suffering was redemptive, right? Jesus was bearing the wrath of God for sin. So that all who believed in him, all who turned to him and uh, accept what the cross is about, would not suffer. They would not endure the wrath of God. Jesus' death was life-giving, But here's the deal. If they rejected him, if they finally and fully rejected the cross and all that it meant, then what's left is nothing but judgment. The wrath that God would pour out on Jerusalem would be uh, not only for that day, but it would be for then and for all eternity. There's nothing left but judgment. And so Jesus says, you know, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Uh, Wake up to the judgment that is going to fall on you unless you turn uh, to God and repent. Unless you turn to me and uh, fall under the power of the cross. So again, Jesus is far more concerned about those who are executing him than he is for himself. And he's still weeping over the city that has brought itself under God's judgment. But then he goes on and there's more. It says in verse 33, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Um, This parade of people, this crowd finally comes to this place called Golgotha in in Aramaic. Um, Luke doesn't give the Aramaic title, he gives the Greek title, which simply means Skull Hill. Um, it, It was named that because it apparently looked like a skull. Um, a fitting place for an execution, right? Fitting for a couple of reasons. One, because it just pictures death. But also because it was a high place, uh, a rounded mound that set itself above much of the city. So the, the, the whole point of the Jews doing this is, this is they, I mean, the Romans doing this, is they wanted it to be very public, right? This is not something they hit off in a corner somewhere. Right? They wanted people to see what happens to criminals. So they picked this spot that's elevated, that's prominent, that from all over the city, as you look toward the uh, western horizon, you would see this mound and on it these crosses. Right? So from a great distance, you knew there was an execution going on. And uh, we also know that it was, it was by a, a, a major road into the city, so it was very public. And it says that they, they crucified Jesus. They hung him on the cross. And they would have done that by uh nailing or, or or tying Jesus' hands to this cross piece and then lifting it up and fixing it to the the stake in place. Uh, Luke doesn't mention the nails, but John does, other gospel writers do. Uh, and the scene really really is depicted well in Psalms twenty two, where it says this Psalms twenty two verse seven everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads, saying, Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. Verse 16, My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil game closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. And it's true that in this as Jesus is nailed to the cross. It is it is really not the beginning of his suffering, but it is the grand climax of his suffering uh, as as he lays down his life. And if all that Jesus suffered up to this point has been severe, it pales in comparison to the cross and. Um, It is a death uh, deserving of only the worst kind of criminals. And it says that Jesus dies in that company. He dies as a criminal, one who's a lawbreaker. Uh, But on top of all that, on top of the pain and suffering and humiliation, as his clothes are stripped off and he's hanging there in agony. uh, If that's not bad enough, the crowd, especially the, the Jewish rulers and the soldiers, begin to mock Jesus scoffing at his claims to be Son of God, Messiah, King, right? They ridicule and make fun of his claims to be these things. Uh, and and their, their ridicule is based this way. They say, well, if, if you saved others, if you had this power to save, if you're a savior of the world, then why don't you save yourself, right? Why don't you fix this? Why don't you pull yourself down off the cross if you're God, right? There's great mocking and derision in it. And, this, and the Roman soldiers, the same way. If you're the king of the Jews, call your army and have them come save you, have them come rescue you. Um, but of course, we know, because we, we, we read the end of the story and, and on into the rest of the New Testament, we know that Jesus could have saved himself. Absolutely, Jesus had the power to come down off the cross. Uh, he had raised the dead, he had walked on water, right? Coming off the cross was not difficult for him. Uh, he could have called legions of angels to rescue him, and they would have shown they would have shown the Roman soldiers what power is all about right? um, I would have, I would have loved to have seen that right um, God the Father himself could have rescued his son but he does not. And what's amazing is Jesus not even consider saving himself. And and we know that in the garden, Jesus wrestled with this temptation, and he firmly committed to the Father's will. It was not even an option for him to consider saving himself. Why? Because the only way he could truly save others, the only way his life could truly rescue anyone, was for him to not save himself. Right? It was only by going to the cross that Jesus could truly save anyone. And so again, with this selfless love, Jesus does not save himself. He doesn't think about rescuing himself. He endures the cross with a selfless, word, a selfless love that words cannot describe. Right? He ignores their mocking. And he gladly lays down his life to save us. The fourth thing, and the fourth thing is such a big one, I've given it its own, its own heading. In the midst of all this, as they're, as they're mocking, as they're nailing him to the cross, in fact, it's probably at the very moment as the Roman soldiers are pounding the nails into his hands, it says in verse 34, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Amazing, right? Amazing. Uh, in the midst of incredible injustice and mistreatment, right? In, in the middle of incredible suffering, Jesus is still not thinking about himself. Right? You know, is is there ever a time when it's like appropriate to to kind of be a little selfish, right? Do you ever, ever tell ourselves this? You ever, you ever tell yourself this? Well, I kind of deserve I know we're not supposed to be selfish all the time, but like today I deserve it. right? You don't know the day I've had. Everything has gone wrong. Everybody's giving me a hard time. The dog won't even talk to me. You know, the dog's ignoring me. I mean, it's been a bad day, and I've suffered incredibly. I deserve a little selfishness here. And Help me out. Give me some space. You ever said that to yourself, right? Or maybe you've just been treated very unfairly and you've received this incredible injustice, mistreatment, right? And it's like, you know, I deserve to kind of look after myself. In fact, I had somebody recently send me a, an email message, somebody from back in the States, not this community, and they they, they, they were struggling. They said, you know, says Jesus said, you know, when, when somebody strikes, you turn the other cheek. She said, is there really never a time when we can stand up for ourselves? Um, well, I think there is a time and there is a place for justice. I don't think it's always wrong to stand up for ourselves. But uh, is there ever a time you can just be selfish? Well, if Jesus is our model, apparently not. Because in the midst of the cross, in the midst of all this, Jesus did not go, oh man, you know, I'm about to suffer the sins of the world. I'm about to take the full brunt of God's wrath. Give me some space here. Right. Let me vent a little. Let me just like zap a few of the guards with lightning, right? No. Right? No. Uh, he, he he knows, he's just made this amazing declaration of the judgment coming on Jerusalem, right? And as they nail his hands to that beam, he could have said, You just wait to see what's coming. You think I'm getting it. Wait till you see what God's gonna dump on you. That's right? not what he says. He says, Father, forgive them. But they have no idea what they're doing. Uh, There's four things about Jesus' statement here we need to understand to really get the full impact of what Jesus is is saying. So let me go through them real quick. First of all, uh, we need to know Jesus knew the penalty of sin. He says forgive them. Jesus is fully aware that what they're doing is a crime against God. Right? that they are guilty of the worst rejection, the worst treatment of God's precious and holy Son, Jesus knows that this will incite the Father's wrath. God is his Father. Right? And any of us who are parents would understand that if we saw this kind of thing happening to our child, receiving this kind of unjust treatment, who was being murdered like this without cause, we would be outraged, right? We would want the full, uh, severe outpouring of justice on those who were doing this. And and Jesus knows His Father's heart and He knows that absolutely there will be wrath for this. That it is the rightful response of God to punish severely this kind of crime against His Son and against God Himself. Psalms 21 puts it this way. if, If you don't, you're not convinced that God is a God of wrath, Psalms 21 says this, it says, Your hand, speaking of God, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your, your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Right? Jesus is aware that this is how God deals with his enemies. That the wages of sin is death, and that the price of death is terrible. It's terrible. But Jesus prays that they would be forgiven because he knows they're guilty, he knows they need forgiveness. Second thing, Jesus also knows the blindness of the sinner. He says, Forgive them, for they have no idea what they're doing. Uh, in other words, G- Jesus was saying they're guilty, but they're not guilty of the most severe crimes because they don't know who they're nailing to the cross. He says, Father, they don't, they don't know. They're, they're blind. They don't know that it's the very Son of God that they are about to kill. So, uh, So show compassion. They're guilty of many things, but they're ignorant of the extent of their crimes against God. Third thing. Jesus knows the heart of his Father. He knows God's heart. And this is what's most amazing. He knows that God's a God of wrath, but he also knows the depth of God's compassion for sinners. And so he can pray with boldness this prayer, God, if there is a way, if you could extend grace to them, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. Forgive their sin. Uh, As as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, sent Jesus to save us. And, And Jesus is fully aware of the compassion and love his father has for sinners. So he prays for his enemies at the very moment they're crucifying him. That yes, it is the heart of God to judge sin, but it's also the heart of God to forgive the sinner. So he prays for that. Fourth thing, Jesus knows the means of grace. Right? Jesus knows full well that it is the very fact that they are nailing him to that cross that makes forgiveness even possible. Jesus is in essence praying, God, because they are killing me, because I am paying for the price, I am paying for their sin as well. I'm paying for their redemption. Don't hold it against them. Uh, I am taking that penalty. I am paying the price for their sins, so Father, please forgive them. What a great reminder that all who turn to God in repentance, confessing their sins, claiming the blood of Jesus, will be forgiven. It right? will be forgiven. Even those who nailed them to the cross. Um, Such is the heart of God for sinners, right? Such is God's heart for us. And the truth is that all of us are guilty of nailing Jesus to the cross. We didn't put the physical nails there, but we are the one who sent him. And and Jesus' cry from the cross is, Father, forgive them. May my sacrifice, may my atoning work be sufficient to bring forgiveness to your enemies To those who have showed they hate you. Again, you know, I wish I had words to describe this selfless love of God. There really are. But these pictures portray who God is, right? Who our God is. Um, And God calls us to be like Him. Right? It's not enough just that we get saved, but the, the, the whole point of the gospel is that we understand it to the point that it's life-changing. So let me give you just a couple things about how we can uh, live out these things in our life, right? If, if God did all this, if this is who God is, what differences should it make in our life? Real quick, a couple things. First, um, we, we we need to love this God, right? We need to know this God and love Him. Right? It's vitally important that we contemplate a lot all that happened on the cross. And I've just covered briefly, as I said, really to do this justice, we should, we should take about two months to unpack each of these pictures, um, challenge you to go home and contemplate these things and really come to know the love of God. And, and here's the deal. Uh, we, we contemplate his love partly by, by meditating on his gift, his grace, and this may sound a little backwards and odd, but you, you can't really know the love of God if you do, do not contemplate his wrath. Right? Uh, well, That seems kind of counterintuitive, but here's why. Um, the reason is that without really understanding his wrath, God's love becomes shallow and empty. And we live in a world where people don 't want to talk about god 's wrath they don 't want to talk about God judging and punishing sin, they want to talk a lot about god 's love God is love you know God is love let's let 's not talk about it. because honestly it's not fun to talk about wrath you know i I don't see people wearing t- shirts it 's all about the wrath. right you know we 't cross stitch those little things, children of wrath, put it up on our wall I get that right we don 't like to talk about that. But here's the deal. Without God's wrath, if you don't understand that part of God's character, you can't really know what his love is. And, and we live in a world that is tried that is trying that. Right? And, and what happens is the cross becomes pointless and meaningless. Right? If God is not a God who judges sin, whose right response to rebellion and hatred towards him, the right response towards them killing his son, is one of vengeance and wrath, Right? Then, then the cross becomes kind of pointless. It has no meaning uh, because it means that, uh, that forgiveness um, is not appeasing his righteous anger. In other words, that he has a right to judge and that forgiveness is setting aside uh, that wrath. It's diverting it, so that we don't we don't we don't receive what was justly due us. Um, and so the the world has kind of reframed what love and forgiveness is. And uh, in a world where God is not a God of wrath and there is no real judgment for sin, um, forgiveness it means simply get over it. Right? over. Have you ever heard this? Right? People say you need to forgive, which they mean just get over it. You know, I know I wronged you, but it's your problem. Just get over it. I know we may have done something God didn't like, but that's his problem. He just needs to get over it. Right? And, and that's kind of what the world means by forgiveness. Someone's wrong. you Well, it's their problem. They just need to get over it. It right? doesn't matter that you're a jerk. right? They just got to get over you being a jerk. Right? And on top of that, love gets reduced to tolerance. Um, and, and what that means is, it doesn't matter how screwed up you are, how what bad things you've done, how much you have sinned or violated the law or people, other people. Right? Uh, love is simply tolerating them, meaning you can't make value or judgment statements about their moral failure. It's simply your opinion that they've messed up, right? And you just got to what? You just got to get over it, right? Uh, you got to tolerate them. And if you don't, it means you are prejudiced, right? It means you just hate them because you make statements about their moral conduct because you call them a sinner, right? Just shows you're full of hate. And they, that's how they describe God. Well, God has no business telling us I've done right or wrong, right? He's just prejudiced. He's just got to get over it. If he's really a God of love, he would get over it. Well, does that make sense? Well, apparently to our modern world, it does. But it's a very poor definition or picture of what love is. Right? It's a love that is, is consumed with selfishness, right? that is completely self-absorbed and self-focused. And it is, in my opinion, it is shallow, and it's really not what love is. Uh, but God's love is not like that. God's love is a kind of love that will fight for the rights of those who are harmed, who wants to see uh, wrongs punished, right? who is righteous and holy enough that he demands justice when we have wronged him and hated him. It is not prejudice. It's truth. Right? It's righteousness. It's justice. Uh, love is not tolerating sin, but it is condemning sin because it is inherently wrong and evil, and it's ultimately destructive not only for those we sin against, but for us, right? We, we are destroying our own life when we sin. So we're not doing anybody any favors to tolerate their moral collapse and failure. We're not helping them by tolerating them. Um. So, so, so God's love demands justice and wrath. It demands punishment. But the amazing thing is that uh, in the cross, both his love and justice meet. Right? And so God pours out his wrath. He judges sin, but he does it on a substitute, on one who was not carrying his own cross, who took up our cross and took our penalty. So that forgiveness is possible, not because God's getting over it, but because he is venting his wrath and vengeance that's rightfully due on his own son. So that he can forgive us. Right? But you know, That is love. Right? That is love that is so much fuller and deeper and bigger than we have words for. Right? And that's the love we've got to come to know and understand. That's the love God has for you and I. That kind of love, right? That kind of love. Second thing is, is once we understand that, uh, plain and simple, we just have to love people, right? We, we need to be loving people as God loved us, uh, which is impossible until we've experienced his love for us. Because where we might want God to tolerate us, we will not tolerate injustice against us, right? People, people wrong us. What do we want, we want justice, of course. right? We want punishment. We want vengeance. We don't want to tolerate, and neither does the world. right? Neither does the world. But we now have a power to love like God does. Right? To, to live like Jesus did. When his enemies were pouring out their full wrath on him, what does Jesus do? He weeps for them. He grieves for them. He said he prays for them that God would forgive them. Right? Um, do you ever have a right to be selfish? Not really, right? Our call is to, is, to, is to be selfless in our love and unselfish in giving even to our enemies, even to those people who drive us crazy, right? who frustrate us. We're to love them. Lastly, we're, we're to live to give. Okay, Jesus went to the full extent to show his love for us, John says in John 13. Full extent of love. He gave his life, constantly giving. Right? We should be giving as Jesus gave. Let me close with just a couple of refrains of this great hymn, O oh, to be like thee. Great place to just make this our prayer. O oh, to be like thee. Blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures, just thy perfect likeness to wear. O to be like thee, O to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art, come in thy sweetness, come in thy fullness, stamp thine own image deep on my heart. Oh, to be like Thee, full of compassion, loving, forgiving, tender, and kind, helping the helpless, cheering the fainting, seeking the wandering sinners to find. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand.